Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. We brought all evil into some form or another. I'm not guilty. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. If I couldn't keep them there with me whole, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Well, hello there. This is the Bad Taste Crime Cast. I'm Janelle. I'm Vicky. And we have tales for you. (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah. It's, um... Spooky tales? Not even spooky tales. I don't know. Spooky tales of big business. The scariest thing of all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. We have a great episode for you today, although I think we just didn't... I think this is technically our Halloween episode, but we didn't... (laughs) We did it. <laughs> yeah, because I don't know when anything comes out anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't even know. Um, that's okay. This is still going to be fun. Yeah, we're still I mean, here. This, this year, to be honest, is spooky enough. So we're going to come in with some lighthearted stuff. I know. Just <laughs> being alive is like spooky. It's a real <laughs> right spooky now. year. Oh my goodness. Um, so on that note, we are gonna head over to the newsroom. Our news this week comes from Orange County, California, thanks to the Orange County Register. There's been a lot of stuff happening in California at the moment with specifically like various sheriff's departments and um, police organizations. But this particular case is about two uh, Orange County Sheriff's deputies, Joseph Anthony Atkinson and Bryce Richard Simpson. They've both been fired from their duties, but also convicted of lying on their police reports. Well, who would have thought? Right? <laughs> During the grand jury hearing, both former officers testified that they didn't know it was illegal to falsify documents. Mm. Yeah, I'm like, really? You did, you did it. You didn't know this very obvious thing that 
you know, government documents and and lying are and not police officery stuff. <laughs> yeah. So apparently what they had done is they had written their reports to show that they had booked evidence when they actually hadn't. So they have a policy where the evidence you have to um you collect has to be booked by the end of your shift and they they just didn't actually book any of the evidence. So this is also something and this is what I found interesting. Um, that the sheriff's deputies for Orange County have done for years over hundreds of cases, and it was only discovered after an internal audit um, kind of sparked by this case. Atkinson and Simpson claimed that they hadn't been trained on the penal code, which seems really like a failing of the police department, if that's true, as well as the officer's. But the sheriff's department was very quick to defend themselves, saying that the officers had indeed been trained on the importance of filing evidence. Both officers were allowed to plead guilty to misdemeanor charges of willful omission to perform their duty. They also both testified in a grand jury proceeding of a third officer who did not take a plea deal, which is a case I think we'll probably talk about on a later episode as it gets a little further down in the court lines. But... Just this idea of like, I don't know, part of me feels like filing accurate reports is literally like a base thing in your job description as an officer. I could be wrong. We know how well they train police officers. So are you? Yeah, years, right? Mm -hmm. Years is what I'm hearing. (laughs) Yeah. Best police training in the world. Moving right along. We are going to move to Netflix and Kill, where this week we are talking about The Vow. I I was wondering why it took you so long. <laughs> I'm obsessed with this series. Well, in fairness, it's still going on. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I think the they're they're either just about to release the last episode as we record this, like this weekend, or there's like one more. It's towards the end of the series, but. This is one of those cases I have been following forever, (laughs) it feels like. So this newly released uh, documentary series, it follows the case of Nexium, Keith Raniere, and the people who fought to bring him down. It features members who have left the cult from very high up positions, including Sarah Edmondson, Mark Vicente, Bonnie Peace, Anthony Ames, Barbara Boucher, Susan Dons, and Tony Natalie, along with Catherine Oxenberg, who is fighting to really save her daughter, India, from the organization. The series itself began filming in 2017 as the escapees started recording themselves for fear of being sued or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but it continues to follow the group as this, like when the Me Too movement kind of picked up steam. And that's about when the FBI finally took an interest in hearing these people out. Now, if you remember, Keith Raniere was convicted of many crimes, including sex trafficking of children, conspiracy, and conspiracy to commit forced labor, among other things, in June of 2019. His sentencing is actually coming up pretty soon on October 27th, which will have happened just before this episode drops. Mm -hmm. And he's looking at a mandatory 15-year sentence and a maximum of life imprisonment. And I will also say, which I found kind of interesting, it doesn't happen very often with these documentary series, is that The Vow has been renewed for a second season. So, 
they're continuing to film because there are still people being tried and sentenced in court. But I am absolutely obsessed with this series. I love it. It's, I think, takes a really empathetic look at the stories of these people that are getting out. But it also does a really good job of trying to kind of dig deep into uh, Keith Raniere's past and, you know, yeah. the the people that help him set up Nexium and the lies he used to kind of coerce people into doing what he wanted. And mm-hmm. it's, I don't know, it's wild. Have you had a chance to watch this yet, Janelle? Yes, I have watched all of it so far. And what are your thoughts? It's funny that you love it so much because I don't. <laughs> really? I love I, it. I like the like the first couple of episodes are good. And I like the behind the scenes stuff with getting to know a little bit more about Keith Raniere and his past and, and everything. But mm-hmm. the whole getting the Oxenberg girl out seemed a little bit weird to me. And it was very, like, sensationalized. And then yesterday I discovered it's because she has her own TV series coming out on Stars. Oh, yes. I heard about that. So I feel like that was a little gimmicky. And, like, the connections of her family being related to a fucking princess and her mother being on whatever that soap opera was that I can't remember. It seemed like a soap opera. It seemed very kind of, like, blown out of proportion and staged to a degree, to be honest. I don't know, man. I, I, the one thing I do like about this is you catch these people in these very, what I feel like are very genuine moments of trying to grapple with some of these things that they're dealing with of, you know, the people that they've brought in dealing with their own, um, sort of like survivor's guilt almost. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And, you know, trying to grapple with the damage they've done and the damage that's been done to them. I mean, I don't know what episode you're on, but the last episode, there was... A- I'm on the most recent. I think I have like okay. six minutes left in the most recent the, episode. The point in the most recent episode where India's mother is, makes this joke about, you know, the wife being forced to sleep on the floor. Yes. Yeah. That whole scene, I was just like, she doesn't get it. She doesn't get yeah. it. This is all just her I feel like my mother is very similar to this woman. It's her desperate mm-hmm. attempt to not be relevant, but it's her desperate attempt to get attention from her daughter, and her daughter doesn't want anything to do with her. Mm-hmm. And yes, she is in a cult, but I feel there's something deeper in that story that they're not going to touch on. Like, why, yeah. if you had such a perfect family life, would you run and stay in a cult and not contact your family? Yeah. And they do talk about kind of India getting into Nexium thanks to her mother. Exactly. Like like <laughs> Catherine and India had gone together to a Nexium seminar because it was something they wanted to do together and mm-hmm. India stayed. Yeah. So but it's like it is kind of like this little small blip in in the, story. the whole storyline. Yeah. So that aspect of it is what took me out of it. The other stories mm-hmm. I think were very important and how that you know, that um, director, I'm forgetting that that couple's name, the man and the wife who were in it together, that he was the videographer, basically. Yeah, Mark Mark Vicente and Bonnie Peace. Mm-hmm. Their story is very interesting because you didn't really hear about it in the news. You just heard about the women who were in the group and got branded. Mm-hmm. You don't hear mm-hmm. about all the other sorts of manipulations. So those aspects are really interesting. But I just feel like 
I don't know, there were parts of it where I'm like, this seems very, like, staged. Yeah. Like, there's parts of it where it seems... But to be honest, the guy who is the director, the film director, is has a part in, you know, how this is playing out and how it's being filmed. So I guess mm-hmm. it, the way that he is presenting it seems very cinematic. Yeah. And I th- the, the reason... I'll tell you what. The reason I like it is because of when they started filming... And being able to follow this story basically till the, I mean, it hasn't ended yet. Like I said, mm-hmm. there were still, there's still people waiting, awaiting trials and awaiting yeah. sentencings and stuff. So they haven't even got to the part where they ran away to Mexico yet. <laughs> right. Right. And the other, the, the, uh, Claire Bronfman mm-hmm. is one that's like still awaiting trial. Like her trial, yeah. I think, is coming up the end of this year, the beginning of next year. And so, the ability to follow something from beginning to, you know, whatever end you can foresee, right? I love, th- I kind of love that about documentaries because you get the sense of things happening sort of in real time. Yes. And even in the be- the beginning of, of this kind of group, this ragtag bunch of, of people who are connected by this organization, really trying to go to the police and not really getting any feedback until, you know, this Me Too movement and the concern for women and women's rights. And like, it's very, I don't know, to me, it's, it's, I love having a timeline like that where you can, you get a sense of it in real time, even though obviously you're not watching it live. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I I just kind of, I think because I've been following this case for so long, and heard so many things. Sarah Edmondson herself was on another podcast um, mm-hmm. pretty soon after she got out. I forget which one it was, but it was a CBC podcast yeah. um, that they did specifically with her. And which she's the person that I read about first. Yes. Yeah. Um, and she's definitely, I think, been one of the more vocal ones because of her position experience within the company (laughs) yeah and she feels a lot of guilt for recruiting oh yeah all of these other people in and she feels guilt because i feel like most of those people don't feel guilty but i found it extremely interesting when they were bringing in uh women that keith ranieri had dated in the past or brought in when it first started yes that was super interesting to me or the people who were in the was it the seattle or was it tacoma one of the West mm-hmm. Coast groups where they basically closed the entire building and that's what forced it up into Vancouver. All of yes. those people who sat down and had like this really intense meeting with him and they were like, listen, this is not right. And they all just yeah. failed, which I thought was amazing. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, the amount of video and audio that they have from some of these more what you would assume are more private moments. I mean, they have audio from these, um, I forget what they call it, but it's like the conversations they have with Keith. Mm-hmm. And like They're that meeting ESPs. that you're talking about. That's, is it an ESP? I, I forget. It, I get some of the language mixed up with um, Scientology. Scientology. <laughs> yeah. It's very, very similar. Yeah. It is very similar. That's probably why I was so intrigued by it. Because it's very similar to Scientology mm-hmm. in this kind of like making up of terms to define things within the organization. The thing I love about watching cult stuff is I sit there and I go, I don't understand how these people could fall for this. I am such a skeptic and I am such like a – I kind of like test people out before I even – open them up enough to have a, like an actual mm-hmm. legitimate conversation with me. And so mm-hmm. 
it's so hard for me to understand how people can be manipulated so much. But that's yeah. just because I grew up in a very different household and, you know, I'm not as trusting of people. I don't have – I'm not going to, like, just be like, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt right off the bat. It's like, no, no, no. I'm going to watch you. I'm going to see what you're yeah. about. <laughs> you know? So it just baffles me. <laughs> Truly, it's it's really something that can happen to most anybody, I mm-hmm. would say. And I definitely think it depends on the place you're at in your life. Like, this specific organization, Nexium itself, was billed as this, like, self-help kind of positive organization. And a lot of people went there searching for something or felt like they were lacking something in their life. So like, on the sheer fact that they were at that point, right, Mm -hmm. is what made them susceptible to being played into like, joining this and moving through the ranks and trying to get their sashes and paying all of this money. It's an expensive thing. Like, it 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 just to- it's almost like you have to have the right place in the right time mm-hmm. to have somebody in that like perfect state of mind to be brought in. I don't know. I'd like to think I would join a cult, but who knows? I could be already in one, and I don't even know about it. I mean, yeah, if you think about it, like there are certain aspects about like yoga is considered very cultish. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, the QAnon stuff is becoming culty, like. Yes. Anything can turn into a cult very easily. 100%. Yeah. I mean, there's the cult of bad taste. Hello. Hey. Hey Uh, Anyway, if you want to check this out, it's called The Vow. It's on HBO. I recommend it, at least if you're unfamiliar with the case. It's probably the most full picture I've Mm -hmm. seen of Nexium as an organization. So... Check it out. This is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. This one's actually not too bad. At least on my end, I don't think. It's it's um, not great. I mean, if you think the attempt of eradicating an entire peoples is bad, then yeah, mine's pretty bad. I mean, that's <laughs> bad. Mm-hmm. But relatively speaking, mm-hmm. compared to other episodes, I did get somebody on the... um. The Bad Babysitters episode that we released a few weeks ago that was like, dude, you need to pull it back a little bit. That was a little too much. And I thought, oh my God, (laughs) the Bad Babysitters. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. I had somebody say, "Ooh, I think you might have hit you might have hit that point. And I was like, oh, my God, it Um, only took three years. And I hit that point. I feel like we've had other episodes that were far worse than that. (laughs) <laughs> that's what i thought too but eh, who knows and i have also included children so <laughs> it's always mm-hmm. bad when there's children involved but anyway what are we talking about today janelle so because i'm always like in the you know thinking about the next month i'm working on stuff at work for november and like thinking about i have to like create a, a whole book list and things about like indigenous authors and um, th- that's our alternative to celebrating Thanksgiving in the literary world is we highlight indigenous authors during the month of November. Very nice. I like that. I approve. Yeah. <laughs> I found this book and I had kind of seen it a little bit before in reference to something else I was looking into. It's called Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. Oh. And it's by David Grant. And it's something that I actually 
so I, when I see a book, I have this like list on my phone where I'm like digital book list. I need to remember to come back to this. And it's been on my, (laughs) it's been on my digital book list for a very long time. And it was actually put, like I put it on that episode brainstorm we did when we first started hundreds of thousands of years ago. Okay. How can I bring this into an episode? So we're going to talk about cases where the profits of something were valued more than the people involved. And I say profits over people, it's a very kind of common turn of phrase when we think a lot about corporations. But realistically, um, that's also kind of how our government works in a capitalist society. So Mm -hmm. that's a perfect kind of theme for this case. So yes, this tale is going to take place in Oklahoma in the 1920s, specifically in the Osage Nation. Now, I want to clarify something because Osage is a mispronunciation of the actual tribal name. Oh. Every single tribal name that you know is not actually what the indigenous people are called. I just want everyone to know that. Yeah, I'm not. That doesn't surprise me at all. Everything is wrong. <laughs> so this Osage is a French, like a French mispronunciation of the actual organization. And it's not even spelled correctly. So the way that it is spelled is W-A-H-Z-H-A-Z-H-E. Oh, that's like not even close. Yeah, so it's Wazazi. Yeah, so Wazazi. Um, okay. So the French did not hear it correctly. But they do go by Osage. But just know that that is not how they're, <laughs> that is not how they're spelled or pronounced. <laughs> it's funny because in like my heritage, I am considered Cherokee, but that's not how you say it. It's Jalahi, and it's spelled T S A L A G I. Okay. So everything you know about indigenous people is a lie. <laughs> Damn, I feel like you just dropped a knowledge bomb on me. I had no idea, but also yeah. not surprised in the slightest. <laughs> so. I always kind of tell people that it's really good to look up specific histories of tribes in your area if you're interested in knowing more about them and finding out the correct pronunciation and who lived on your land because, you know, history is written by dumbass white people who just want to say whatever they want to say and not actually consult with other people. So in this story, I'll be kind of saying Osage um, just because that's how it is in a lot of the literature that I was reading and also how the nation pronounces it now currently if you do want to know more about like pronunciations and the different tribes in your area there is a website it's called native-land.ca you can put in your address or any address around the northern america canada mexico the whole shebang and you can find out all of the tribes that lived in a specific area, and it will link you to any tribes that are still around because it also puts tribes that are no longer in existence. And it will link you directly to their tribal nation or tribal council websites. And it will show you correct pronunciations and the different various names that each tribe has ever had. So it's a very informative website. A lot of people were pushing it for like Indigenous Peoples Day and the whole month of November because... There is a, a currently a resurgence in the land back movement. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like a great tool that people are using to inform others about 
the peoples that were here before them or right now. <laughs> oh, if you don't very know, cool. Yeah, there are there are tribal nations everywhere. <laughs> we'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Osage Nation actually originated in the Midwest region. They're considered one of the Plains tribes. I kind of want to give a background so you can understand the sort of like absolute desperation of this story. They moved across what is now known as Southern Ohio and Northern Kentucky to what has become Missouri area due to the various kind of Plains tribes. There's a lot of war growing on. The Iroquois Nation was kind of moving from the East Coast to the Plains, so they were pushing some of the other tribes out. Now, when they were forcibly removed from the territory in Missouri that they lived, they agreed, and I put big heavy quotes on agreed, to an area that was deemed Indian Territory, which is what is now known as Oklahoma. So this is back before we had statehood in Texas and Oklahoma. We had just purchased the land in the Louisiana Purchase. It was a territory, not a state. So they were forcing all of the tribes into the territories, which is why most tribal nations are way west of the Mississippi River. Okay. Now, they were hoping and eyeing at this territory to become a state, which is why a lot of the tribes that lived, that were forced there and started living there, started to push back because they were like, you told us this wasn't going to be a state. You told us it was going to be Indian territory. And of course, the government does not fulfill any of their promises. Duh. Of course not. Hashtag America. (laughs) Yes. So not only did they not pay the tribe annuities, which is what they were told that they were going to do after they forced them to leave their land, they said, we're going to give you money for it. They did not do that. (laughs) They also did not supply them with the proper amount of rations as agreed upon. If you don't know anything about culinary history... Most Native peoples don't eat the same stuff white people do, okay? hmm So I'm very fascinated by this because I'm trying to, like, get back to an understanding of, like, my family and a lot of you, – you think of, like, hunter-gatherer, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the indigenous diet was very much relied upon what was available around them. There were some nations that were already farming way before – any white person or Spanish person stepped foot upon this land. Mm -hmm. So farming wasn't totally out of the ordinary, but they were farming things like sunchokes and all kinds of different berries and things like that. Lots of fish, lots of wild game. So when the government took over, they were forcing them to eat beef, white flour, lard, things that are not an indigenous diet. Yeah. And so they pushed them into this land They said that they were going to give them rations, and the rations were supposed to be all of those things, right? So, like, rations of beef, enough for all of the tribe, white flour, and lard. Those were what they were promised. They didn't give them pretty much anything. Fun fact, that is when fry bread was created, is when all of these nations were forced out and given rations. So whenever you hear about, like, Indian fry bread, it is a survival food that was created out of this sort of... Um, you know, uh, push from culture. Um, okay. Some people hate it. Some people love it. Some people look at as it as as this like wonderful kind of thing that came out of survival. Like we survived, we created something out of nothing. Kind of a thing. Yeah, it's it's very like I'm very interested in all this the subtle nuances of of this kind of time period and and what was happening to my peoples. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So not only was all these things happening, but they there was also a lot of fuckery when it came around to the land that the government was setting aside. So if you're familiar, Oklahoma has a very large Osage nation, but it also is pretty much where a vast majority of the uh, Cherokee peoples or the Chalahee peoples um, were forced to via the Trail of Tears. They promised the exact same land to both tribes. So this caused this caused a war between these two peoples. And then the Osage Nation and the Cherokee Nation kind of had to start to understand what land that they could use. So they started warring. There was a lot of land shifting. It was a big fucking mess. They totally they totally knew what they were doing too by promising (laughs) it's like maybe these these people will just kill each other off exactly over this land. I'm sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Jeez. Yes, there was tons and tons of manipulation. Um, oh, my God. Which we will talk about because it's fucked. Great. <laughs> so, you know, each nation, each tribal nation in the United States has their sordid history with the U.S. government. But the overall reaching theme here is the government and rich business fucking people worked together to make sure that indigenous peoples had no rights and no way to live. They tricked them into giving up their land, their property, and even their fucking children. Now, the Osage Nation, though, was a little bit ahead of their others in terms of negotiations with the government. But, I mean, boy, howdy. (laughs) The government tried everything. So, the Osage were forced into Oklahoma and forced to become farmers. And really, they actually started getting into cattle ranching due to the area they resided. Oklahoma has a lot of prairie so they became cattle ranchers in 1894 however oil was found on osage land which would lead Uh to the biggest murder for money scheme to come out of oklahoma and what would be the case that birthed the fbi as we know it now janelle you just said the magic word oil (sighs) oil Oil. exactly this is where those profits over people come into play (sighs) so I'm going to give you a little history about what head rights are. I want to define head rights for you because this is basically what this entire case is about. Now, the dictionary definition of head rights, there's two different kind of explanations for it. A head right is a right belonging to a member of an American Indian tribe to receive a per capita share in the distribution of income earned by the tribal trust fund or a share of the fund on its termination. Also, it is the right of a member to share a tribal property. Now, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah, I don't know what that means. (laughs) Head rights is kind of like an inheritance. So when you are a full card-carrying tribal member, again, these are terms that are forced upon tribes by the government. This is not something that they are willingly like, yes, you're a card-carrying member of this tribe. Right. This was something that was forced upon it to kind of quantify the population of indigenous peoples. So they're thinking about blood and membership. So if you're a full-blooded Osage tribal member, you have head rights to this land in Oklahoma. So when you die, you pass your head rights on to another member of your family who has to have a certain percentage of Osage blood in them in order to receive the land. That is what is called a blood quantum. Okay. So 
You're going to hear blood quantums a lot in head rights whenever you read about um, indigenous peoples and land property issues and the government. Okay. From my own experience, because I wanted to know what lengths it would take for my family to become members of a tribe, uh, you know, again, blood quantum was something that was kind of created by the government to, in their words, what was supposed to happen was it was supposed to keep people who were white settlers from claiming land that was meant for indigenous peoples by just saying that they were native, right? Right. But what wound up happening is it was actually about kind of infiltrating indigenous tribal governments. And a lot of tribal peoples married outside of the tribe. And so their children were not full blooded. And so they were able to say, well, you have this percentage of blood, so you can't be a tribal member. Oh, my God. So the idea of blood quantum is something that was, you know, it's it's a European ideology that is not at Mm -hmm. all was ever practiced by indigenous peoples it was forced upon them by the government so that they could control the population of indigenous peoples in a said tribe yeah and (laughs) since we're doing a little history lesson i just want to jump in here and say this is one of the one of many things that we as early americans did to kind of control our land other countries looked to the way that America was handling their indigenous people and then practiced the same thing. They yep. did the Canada, same thing Africa. in Canada. <laughs> yep. Yes. It was like, oh, look, America's got a handle on how to deal with these people that they don't really want around. We should do the same thing. And then mm-hmm. they did. So yeah. that's kind of shitty. <laughs> also, fun fact. This is exactly the inspiration of what Hitler was doing when he started talking about the Jewish problem. He looked to America in this time period and how he handled indigenous peoples and used that in his Holocaust. So, yes, (laughs) I only learned of this recently and was like, again, I like, why am I not surprised about that? Like, it's the American way, Vicky. (laughs) We do horrible things so well that other nations look to our horrible things to do their horrible things. Like, this isn't great, guys. Sure it's is. It's not good. <laughs> oh. So, oh, God. Um, there's a lot of, I, I find this very interesting because there's a lot of conversation right now. Um, a lot of indigenous peoples, a lot of native peoples of Canada are saying, you know, you may have the, you may by blood be native. But unless you live and breathe that culture, unless you are getting back to your culture and you're back to your roots, you can't claim you're indigenous. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting the way that kind of tribes and, and people, you know, indigenous people function. And it's different for every single, I just want to clarify, it's different for every single tribe. No tribe mm-hmm. is exactly the same. There is no such thing as like an Indian, okay? Everybody is different. Yes. But- a lot of the threads that we see are a lot of tribes will welcome someone in if they live and practice and commit to being a part of the community. Right. And that is the difference. Yeah. So there is no such like <laughs> like when people are like, oh, I'm one one sixteenth Cherokee. It's like uh, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter unless you are practicing that way of life or unless you are actively getting back to the history 
and actively trying to be a part of the community, you cannot claim your indigenousness. You have Mm -hmm. to actually do something and be a part of it, which is why, you know, I do all of this research and I, you know, look at learning Cherokee language and all of these things because I understand that I can't say that unless I am part of it. Right. So I feel like people get it very confused because we're looking at it through a very non-native European centric lens. And we can't do that because that's, that's not correct. We can't look at everything through that kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. So the Osage land, we heard oil. Um, So there's this big, huge oil boom that's happening in Oklahoma right now. And since they own the land and this is the key point here, they own the mineral rights to this land. This makes the people who have head rights in the Osage Nation fucking rich. And this is what I love to see. I love to see me some rich people getting theirs. So in 1923, the tribe took in more than $30 million from all of the oil business, which today is the equivalent of more than $400 million. Oh, my God. Yes. So the wealthiest people were buying cars and jewelry and taking expensive fucking vacations in Europe, which is like, oh, can you even imagine? Can you even imagine? Wow. Some families, this is even more interesting. Some families even had servants. Okay. Holy shit. And not just any servants. They had white servants. (gasps) Oh my God. It's just crazy. (laughs) Now, this isn't something that's, like, an anomaly. There are other, like, the uh, Cherokee peoples. I I say that term because people don't understand when I say Chalahi, but that's fine. Anyway, those peoples actually were also rich before they were forced to move to Oklahoma because they became, like, really successful farmers in North Carolina. And they actually were farming tobacco for the government. There was, like, this whole thing. And once they were forced to move, then they became poor. But... There are tribal nations who had servants and even had slaves. So, oh wow. There's a very sordid history about you know, slaves and indigenous nations, which I highly suggest people look up because it's kind of like this fucking mind fuck when you read about it. Because you have an oppressed person trying to get theirs and oppressing another set of people. We're yeah. just trying to live, and it's just like this very weird sort of twisted thing that was happening. It wasn't super common, but there was enough of it to be like, what is going on in the South? Um, the South really fucked yeah. some shit up <laughs> Yeah, uh, in this weird time period Yeah, of the late 1880s, 1890s. It started to kind of like turn around, but there was a period of time in the United States where it was just like, there was this hierarchy where it's like indigenous peoples were like, one percentage considered better in society than black people, and so they were allowed to own slaves. It was just this fucking weird mindfuck. Anyway. Yeah. It makes my head hurt reading it. Um, yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so these families had servants. They were, you know, had Rolls Royces. They were all up in it. The oil boom was also covered in newspapers, and this is what led to a lot of fraudsters flocking to Oklahoma to get a piece of theirs. The newspapers kind of talked about the extravagant European vacations and jewelry covered Osage women, which seems very like Great Gatsby glamorous. Mm -hmm. But this is what started happening. 
So all of these people started flocking to Oklahoma and trying to marry into an Osage family. Okay. Yes. Some of them even went as far as to try to directly take stuff from the Osage peoples. So we have small-time fraudsters coming. We have big-time lawyers also hopping into Oklahoma to try and quote-unquote help Osage people manage their wealth, all the while taking very large chunks of it via fees, like lawyer fees. Then we have tycoons of industry hopping on over to throw themselves into the mix. Then, of course, the good old U.S. government decided that they were going to chime in and state that any person, Osage person, of less than 100% blood, quantum, would need a guardian to manage their royalties, which also led to a significant amount of abuse. Great. So they stated that basically if you weren't 100% Osage, because the Osage people had a tribal council that would kind of help them, um, they -hmm. needed a, a legal guardian or a lawyer to help them with their royalties because, this is direct quotes, they lacked the competence to understand their own head rights. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I, yeah. uh, U.S. history makes me so mad sometimes because it's like... Yep. Makes me mad all We the don't time. feel... You've <laughs> had, you have all this money, but mm-hmm. you're not doing the stuff with it that we think you should be doing with it, so we're going to just send somebody to deal with it yeah <laughs> because we can like yeah it's they're basic, i mean I, if you know anything about phenomenology whatever that study of a person's skull and brain size uh-huh that was still being used in this period to say that indigenous peoples were of lesser intelligence because of their shape of their head and their brain so they had to have someone fucking help them deal with their money it's like oh my god there are still people, anthropologists in 2020 that stand that by yeah. that research. It's <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> it makes me want to scream and throw things. Yeah. Yeah. So by 1925, 60 Osage people were killed due to this kind of weird sort of fraudster kind of mass murder spree that was happening. Um, and it is actually considered probably much, much higher now because a lot of the people who were murdered or killed because some of them weren't ruled a homicide were actually never reported or even fully investigated it is believed that the death toll during this time period of the osage peoples is close to a hundred in relation to fraud crimes and it didn't truly start to slow down until 1931 when the great depression was in full swing oh dang so this period of time is actually called the reign of terror which, if you're not familiar with U.S. history at all, um, which most of us aren't because what we're taught is maybe one one-sixteenth mm-hmm. of what is true and real. If you're not familiar, this is, ex- this is at the exact same time that the Tulsa Race Massacre was happening, like right next door. So we have the Tulsa Race Massacre happening at the same time of the Reign of Terror. They're killing fucking rich black people and rich indigenous people at the same time in Oklahoma. Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to take a, a look at a couple of these very interconnected cases that were actually investigated. Okay. One of the few. In May of 1924, Molly Burkhart was an Osage woman who married Ernest Burkhart, a white man. Molly had three sisters, Anna, Rita, and Minnie, who were also married outside of their tribe to white men. 
Anna, the sister, was considered the wilder of the bunch. She loved to dance and drink and flirt with men. Molly began to worry when Anna was missing for a few days and had not contacted anyone in her family. Now, this wasn't totally outside of the normal. Sometimes she would go off dancing and drinking and not come back for like a day or two, but she would usually check in with somebody. So she began to get concerned because she hadn't checked in with anybody. Okay. On May 27th of 1921, the body of Anna was found in a ravine by local hunters. There was a bullet hole between her eyes because she had been killed execution style and left for dead in the ravine. Now, the fucked up thing about this, never mind that a woman was murdered. The fucked up thing right. was that her death was ruled accidental due to alcohol poisoning. Um, hold on. Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, that does not sound right. <laughs> so don't you know, when you get drunk, bullet holes just appear in the middle of your skull. It's just you know tiny that? pieces of your body that expel themselves in perfect bullet hole shapes. Yes. So now Anna's head rights reverted back to her mother since Anna was divorced and she had no children. It went back to her mother. So Anna's mother, Lizzie, now had the head rights from not only her daughter, her deceased daughter, but also from her dead husband. So she had double the head rights. On the same day that Anna was found, Charles Whitehorn was also found dead in a very similar fashion. Now, the fun fact that Charles Whitehorn was a cousin of Anna Brown and of Molly Burkhart. So they're related. Okay. While Anna's death was being investigated, her mother Lizzie began to fall ill. Two months later, Lizzie would die, and her estate, or her head rights, would go straight to Molly, Burkhart, and her husband, Ernest. Now, the circumstances of Lizzie's death were actually very suspicious, and it appears that she had been poisoned over a very long period of time. Oh my gosh. In February of 1923, Henry Rowan Horse was found dead in his car from a gunshot to the head. Immediately after Horse's death, a man named William Hale stated that he had an insurance policy for Henry Rowan Horse. Now, I've mentioned this before in a previous case. Yeah. This was back in the time when you could file insurance for anybody. I could have filed insurance for you. I could have filed an insurance policy for the random ass person down the street and been like, they signed it. I have an insurance policy yeah. for them. I was just, that was going to be my exact question. Like, is this that time period? Because that, that still sure is. is just like super weird to me. So we're going to find out a little bit more about William Hale here in a minute. But I just kind of wanted to lay out this weird little timeline to you so you can understand exactly what's going on. Because there is a pattern and it is very precise. March 10th of 1923, a bomb leveled the home of Rita and Bill Smith along with their servant, Nettie Brookshire. Rita was Anna and Molly's sister. The blast instantly killed the two women, but Bill Smith held out a little bit longer at the hospital. Okay. Bill Smith held out long enough to tell authorities that he suspected that the bombing of his home had something to do with his wife's inheritance and a man named William Hale. Dun, dun, dun. Now, who the fuck is William Hale? Good question. William Hale... 
was the self-professed king of the Osage Hills. Okay. He was a devious man who came into Oklahoma to start a ranch. I'm going to put heavy quotes on that. <clears throat> when he learned of the oil boom, he would begin scheming to get himself some of the land. Hale also happened to be the uncle of Ernest Burkhart. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> and if we know, Ernest Burkhart is the husband of Molly, who is the sister okay. of Rita and Anna, who were just fucking murdered. Wow. So, Hale became a well-known figure in the area and rose to a level of somewhat kind of local politician status. He gained most of his dominance through a series of bribery schemes. So he was bribing other landowners, he was bribing the police, he was bribing lawyers, he was bribing fucking everybody. On June 28th, 1923, George Bigheart, now this is going to be a little confusing because we have Burkhart and Bigheart, but <laughs> George Bigheart fell gravely ill while visiting Hale and Ernest Burkhart. He was immediately put on a train to a hospital. And while he was in the hospital, he called for a local lawyer, William W.W. Watkins Vaughn. The doctor stated that it looked as though Big Heart was poisoned. Okay. He explained to the lawyer Vaughn that he suspected Hale was behind it and was trying to ply him with whiskey that had poison in it. So what was happening is this man, George Bigheart, went to go visit Hale and Ernest Burkhart was there and they were talking. And this was kind of this common thing. I don't know why, but a lot of these people were trying to get all of these indigenous people like shit face drunk so that they would agree to things and so that they could take stuff from them. Okay. So they were plying him with copious amounts of whiskey. It just so happened that this whiskey was also full of fucking poison. Of course. So what this meeting was about was a, was a conversation about Big Heart selling land to Hale. And so Big Heart provided the lawyer while he was in the hospital with documents that Hale presented to him, kind of proving that this was kind of a scheme for them to take his land. Okay. Now, the lawyer left to get back, and he was going on a train to get back to his family, and he had all the paperwork with him, and he was ready to kind of, like, go after Hale. Now, what wound up happening is Vaughn never boarded the train. The lawyer, in fact, was found the next morning along the train tracks with his skull crushed in. Oh, my gosh. Mysterious. Yes, this is like a fucking film noir movie. It in is, 1925, yeah. tribal elders of the Osage Nation sought help from the Bureau of Investigation. Now, the Bureau of Investigation was what it, the FBI was called before it became the FBI. Uh-huh. This organization was brand new and... J. Edgar Hoover had just been appointed the brand new director. Oh, great. Yeah. So this is he was the beginning. The best. Yes. This is the beginning of what we commonly now know as the FBI. If you're not familiar, J. Edgar Hoover was in charge of the FBI for, what, three decades? Forever. Something obnoxious. Maybe more than that. Yeah. But he was very into wiretapping, and he was very into, like, Illegal surveillance measures. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, he was not so great. No, he was not. I will give him praise for this, though, because he sent a bunch of bureau people to Oklahoma because he's like, this doesn't sound right. So, yeah. I do give him praise for this, but that's the only thing I give him praise for. <laughs> <laughs> so, the local police and the Bureau of Indian Affairs actually had been no help 
they kind of went to them first. They were the local police were like, well, we don't give a shit. Everyone died from alcohol poisoning. And the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which if you're not familiar, is the is the group that did a lot of the pushing of people out of their land. So, of course, they're not going to be of any fucking help. Mm-hmm. So I'm not surprised they needed to bring in the big guns to kind of help them, which is why they were like, Bureau of Investigation, you guys want to do something? Um, yeah. So they expressed the belief that Hale was part of a plot to steal land and was behind all of the murders. The Bureau sent out Thomas White, who was a former Texas Ranger, who is now a Bureau man, which they describe him as Bureau man, like in all of the readings, which is kind of hilarious. So he went out to investigate. While this was occurring, while they were sending people out, Molly Burkhart was in fear of her life, and she suspected that she was being poisoned by her husband. Oh, God. Now, Burkhart was converted to Catholicism, and so she was a very religious woman, and she went to her church often, and she confided in her priest that she thought that her husband was poisoning her. And the priest told her not to take a sip of drink from her husband ever again. And the priest then went to the Bureau of Investigation and told them that they were suspicious of Molly Burkhart's husband. She was saying that, you know, he basically broke the confidentiality that priests are supposed to have. And reported it Good. to the, uh, the Bureau of Investigation. Good. She was actually sent to the hospital, and briefly, um, they thought she was not going to make it. But she did recover, and she was, in fact, fucking poisoned. Oh, my God. Thomas B. White wrote in 1932 in a memo to the – now it had become the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover – Eventually, Hale became a millionaire who dominated local politics and seemingly could not be punished for any of the many crimes which were laid at his door. His method of building up power and prestige was to put various individuals under obligation to him by means of gifts and favors shown to them. Consequently, he had tremendous following in the vicinity composed not only of the riffraff element which had drifted in, but of many a good and substantial citizens." So basically, Hale and his nephews, which was Ernest and Brian Burkhart, migrated from Texas with the intention to make it rich um, by Hale persuading Ernest and trying to persuade Brian into marrying an Osage family woman to gain control of their head rights. So Ernest and Brian Burkhart and Mr. Hale and another associate were charged with the murders of all of Molly's family, basically. Because a few individuals were killed on tribal land, it actually became a federal crime. Okay. The trial lasted from June 1926 to November 1923. Ernest originally pled not guilty, but quickly changed his plea to guilty and became a witness. He was sentenced to life in prison with hard labor, but was released in 1937. And then, here's a kicker, he was fucking pardoned in 1965. Oh, my God. Fuck you, Oklahoma. Oh, my God. <laughs> now, Molly Burk- Burkhart waited until after the trial and immediately divorced fucking Ernest Burkhart. Good decision, I'd say. After that, she did marry another man, and then she only lived for another 10 years and then died. I think she was in her 40s, um, so she kind of died a little bit early. I mean, she lived that long yeah. after being poisoned. <laughs> right. But she eventually, you know did find happiness in another marriage. Good. Now, Hale, this fucking son of a bitch, he was sentenced to life in prison, but was paroled on July 31st, 1947. He, however, was not pardoned. Good. Now, I'm going to kind of end this by saying that this was only one story of hundreds of stories 
of Osage people being murdered in this time period. I highly suggest that you check out the book that I had suggested before, um, Killers of the Flower Moon. It goes into great length about the investigation by the FBI. I didn't really want to include this in here because, you know, I just took out the snippets that were important because it's very, very, very long-winded and talked a lot about uh-huh. the history of J. Edgar Hoover. And I was like, ugh, who cares? Uh, <laughs> I want to talk about the important stuff. So if you're interested more about how White kind of investigated the case, there is a little bit of a section in the middle of the book that talks about that. But, I mean, really, it was very blatant through just looking at what was fucking happening that Hale had to systematically kill all of those people in a specific order in order for the head rights to get diverted to Molly Burkhart. So that yeah. when Molly Burkhart dies, then it gets her husband gets it because he's the only living heir. Oh, my God. So they plotted and schemed this, and they killed everyone in a very specific line, which you can see when I kind of, like, explained all these people randomly dying in this weird order, who were all related. So uh, the head rights that eventually Molly inherited from all of her dead family members did go to her children. Oh, good. Yeah. So that's not always the case. A lot of the head rights did actually get diverted to members um, and lawyers and all this other fucking ridiculous bullshit. Um, but do go look up this information. Look up the Osage Nation. Go to uh, native-land.ca. Learn about it. Know it. Realize that the land you live on does not belong to you or anyone. Um, <laughs> and also realize that we were fucking murdering people for stupid-ass fucking oil. For literally hundreds of years. And just because they had a little bit of money. Yeah. It's like, come on, guys. But that is the tale of the Reign of Terror, the Osage Nation uh, murders. And I'm so sorry. (laughs) That is crazy. Yeah, it's very twisty and turny. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So when I, once again, when I saw that we had a topic like profits over people, I was like, man. um, (laughs) Y'all come in hot with the weird stuff. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And I did a little digging around. And honestly, I, I feel like it's difficult to talk about corporate greed or like powerful people vying for money without talking about uh, mining and the mining industry, mm-hmm. which goes kind of hand in hand with 
the oil. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's an industry that has really abused its workers for generations. It's not limited to one area of the world. It happens everywhere. In fact, if you're familiar with your workers' rights history, we here in the U.S. have miners to thank for an eight-hour workday mm-hmm. after many, many bloody battles with mine bosses and the thugs that they hired to enforce rules, like literal gun battles. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. Absolutely crazy. Look yes. into it. It's a, it's, oh, I there's some wild stories <laughs> from that. Oh, I have Haymarket over here. Hey, hey, hey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But today, I actually wanted to look at a mining facility in Canada called the West Ray Mine. So I'm also going to say, too, a couple of things before we get started. One, I don't know anything about coal mining, and so I (laughs) learned a lot by doing this. And I'm going to try to take you on some explanations of stuff, so just, just stick with me. And two, I got a huge majority of my research from a it's a summary of an inquiry that the government did following the Westray incident called The Westray Story a Predictable Path to Danger. It's a very thorough inquiry and I definitely suggest everybody check it out. So, with that in mind, the Westray mine owned by Toronto-based Carab Resources Incorporated was initially announced on September 1st, 1988, as a state of the art facility located in the village of Plymouth, Nova Scotia. It was estimated that 300 jobs would be created and the entire operation would be around $127 million. And the Nova Scotian government seemed pretty confident in this endeavor as well, and they agreed to give Carat Resources a $12 million loan and agreed to buy 700,000 tons of coal a year for 15 years at $60 to $74 a ton. So that's a lot of money, that if sure you is. math it. <laughs> The mine itself was estimated to have reserves of 45 million tons of coal. So it was like this really lucrative spot to build a coal mine. Westray officially opened in September of 1991. And everything at that point in time seemed to be lining up just right for them. But it was clear from the beginning that there was little to no concern for worker safety on the part of Karab Resources. Even before the mine opened, there were these huge red flags that the government was concerned about, starting with the construction of the mine itself. Karab Resources hired a subcontractor called Canadian Mining Development, or CMD, to spearhead the mine's construction. Now, the Department of Natural Resources had approved an initial plan for construction, and almost immediately, this plan was abandoned. Of course. They discovered that CMD had changed the tunnel alignment, causing concern that the alignment would intersect major geological faults at oblique angles, routing the tunnels through bad ground and causing poor roof conditions. I don't really know much about geology, but basically it just means that the way that they were digging into the earth earth made the roof really, really unstable, the roof of the mine, because this is all happening underground, remember? So then in April of 1991, and honestly, earlier than they had originally planned, 
Westray took over the construction of the mine, completely scrapping the original plan layout in order to tap into a specific coal seam much sooner than they had intended because they were like, we've got all this money wrapped up into this. We've got people putting orders in for coal already. Like we got to get on this shit super fast so we can make money super fast. From the um, summary of the government report, quote, in the rush to reach saleable coal, workers without adequate coal mining experience were promoted to newly created supervisory positions. Workers were not trained by Westray in safe work methods or in recognizing dangerous roof conditions, despite a major roof collapse in August. Basic safety measures were ignored or performed inadequately. Stone dusting, for example, a critical and standard practice that renders coal dust non-explosive, was carried out sporadically by volunteers on overtime following their 12-hour shifts, end quote. So not great already. And this is even before the official opening of the mine. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Not surprised. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so the mine officially opened on September 11th, 1991, and they actually did like right before the opening, they went in and did that stone dusting that we just talked, talked about Mm -hmm. just beforehand to give it the appearance of following safety protocol. (laughs) There was no such thing as OSHA back then. So, you know. (laughs) Yeah, they had. And this is Canada, too. So Mm -hmm. they had like an office of, well, we'll get into it later because it becomes very complicated with the government agencies Mm -hmm. um, involved. But they knew that hundreds of people were going to show up to this mine opening and they were like, we got to make it look all good so people don't know that we're breaking all of these safety protocols. Cool, guys. Cool and good. But the events that followed made it pretty clear that there were no official safety guidelines in place. So after the opening, that so they had the first roof cave-in in August before the opening in September. After the opening, four more roof cave-ins happened in September and October, which they it was claimed that they were actually controlled cave-ins and that there wasn't any threat to the miners that were working down there. Now, of the sure. 160, yeah, right? It's Ugh. like, mm, and that was, of course, being put out by the mine bosses saying, mm-hmm. this is fine. Of the 160 employees working on site, many contradicted this statement describing near misses and increased danger. At this time, mine inspectors were requesting a more solid plan for the roof support, but Westray was incredibly good at delaying the production of these plans and just kind of were like, yeah, we'll get them to you soon. Oh, we don't have them yet. Just, you know, wait a little longer. We're working on it, you know, and just never gave them up. It was pretty clear that Westray was more focused on the profits it could gain for the high demand of coal rather than keeping its workers safe. And I I do here want to point out that there was a push to unionize the workers during late 1991. It didn't actually succeed until the spring of 1992. And the certification for the union was very unfortunately not granted until after the tragedy that happens at the mine. 
The roof issues continued throughout coal production, specifically in the southwest section where the original construction plans had been abandoned and the tunnels had been uh, rerouted. And almost as if karma was at play here, there was not nearly as much coal being produced of the quality that they desired from those tunnels. And so they eventually deserted them after literally chasing mine workers out thanks to deteriorating conditions. God. (laughs) Which part of me is like, that's what you get. You get shitty coal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But also, how shitty does coal have to be that you've done all of this work and you're like, never mind. (laughs) Yeah, I did. I guess I didn't realize that there was like a specific like caliber or quality of coal that they look for when they're mm-hmm. mining these seams. Cause I'm just thinking coal is coal is coal, you know, <laughs> but I guess not. This is yeah. why I'm not a coal miner also. Cause I live in Illinois, but uh, well, there's coal in Southern Illinois, but fun fact, my great grandfather was a coal miner when he was a teenager before he um, married my great grandmother. Uh, he lived in Virginia and mined coal and then moved to South Car- or North Carolina and became a tobacco farmer. Oh, wow. Janelle's fun fact of the day. (laughs) (laughs) Your family history is so interesting and, like, varied. Confusing. You got got a lot of hands and a lot of pots. A lot of people coming out of the woodwork. What? You're related to me? Yeah. Lots of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So the Department of Natural Resources, again, brought up concerns with the abandonment of the original plan, along with the distance from another mine that was in the area that that was it had the potential to cause issues with the current mining tunnels that they were using. But they failed to act on any of these suspicions. In fact, they approved a when when they finally did get a new plan from Westray, it was this very like basic wireframe plan and they approved this plan and, in fact, assisted to fund the costs of technical studies for monitoring roof conditions and subsidence. <laughs> yeah, it's like I, I can, the 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 inaction of these administrative agencies is baffling. It's like <laughs> but you had though. one job. I mean, I guess. But I'm also like you had one job. Just do the mind stuff. And you couldn't even do (laughs) that. Just do the mind stuff. (laughs) In subsequent investigations, it was revealed that the company took a very lax approach to safety training, failing to provide training or instill a safety mentality in its workforce. There were no efforts to enforce any safety protocol. In fact, Quote, management ignored or encouraged a series of hazardous or illegal practices, including having the miners work 12-hour shifts, improperly storing fuel and refueling vehicles underground, and using non-flame-proof equipment underground in ways that violated conditions set by the Department of Labor. Oh, my God. (laughs) How many ways can you just ignore safety is the question. (laughs) So we've already touched on this practice of stone dusting to control the coal dust accumulating in the mine. The other 
major practice, one that absolutely has to be in place, is a properly planned and executed ventilation system to stop methane from accumulating at flammable and explosive amounts. Mm-hmm. Which is what um, coal canaries were originally used for. God, why do I know this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that like mining stuff would be in your filing cabinet of random factoids Honestly, in your what head. Isn't in my filing cabinet of random facts. <laughs> Um, so this is how it would typically work. And this is, again, from the um, inquiry, quote, the ventilation system from any underground mine is a network of interconnected passages, many of which are also used as a transportation routes for personnel, vehicles and the products of mining. Fresh air is drawn from the surface atmosphere. As the air passes through the underground passages, its quality deteriorates as a result of pollutants produced from the strata and from the effects of machines and mining procedures. The contaminated air is then returned to the surface. Seems pretty basic and easy to do, but they didn't have this. As far as the ventilation system goes in Westray, it was almost non-existent. And while much of the blame for the blatant safety violations lands with Westray itself, the Department of Natural Resources shares the blame for inadequately executing its regulatory duties. At this point in time, there was a bit of change and like overlap in responsibilities within these administration agencies. It was like an overlap in responsibilities with the Department of Mines and Energy. And then later, there were some duties that were transferred to the Department of Labor. At the end of this, the Department of Natural Resources claimed that they were unsure if it was within its mandate to regulate for safety. <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't yeah, know if we can which- do that, guys. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't legally, I don't think we can enforce safety, but we're just going to ask you real nice to follow the rules. But <laughs> no, that's not how government regulation works, Holmes. Ugh. Yeah, I don't, it's, it's, uh, it makes me so irritated because it's like, again, you mm-hmm. had one job and that's, <laughs> you didn't even do that. It's pretty clear that both the, Department of Labor and the Department of Natural Resources failed to hold Westray accountable for violating various mining acts and diverting from its original planned submissions. There's also a lot of like political interests that were involved here that contributed to the ignoring of safety protocol. It was things like this expectation of job creation happening really quickly in the community. You had a lot of politicians coming in to kind of champion that, putting pressure on the mine owners to like get the mine up and going quicker. But I'm honestly, I'm not really going to delve into that spider web because it's a whole thing. I, again, I'm just going to encourage you to read the report called The Westray Story, A Predictable Path to Disaster. It has a ton of information in there about the political aspects to it. I also want to point out here that the coal seam that was being mined in Westray, it was called the Ford Coal Seam. Mm-hmm. And it had an extensive history of methane explosions, which merited even more care when you were tapping into the seam. Now, this is the exact seam 
that Westray was mining when disaster struck. On May 9th, 1992, at 5.18 a.m., less than a year after the mine's official opening, a massive methane gas explosion sent blue flames shooting out of the mine's opening. The explosion was so massive, it shook the surrounding houses more than a kilometer away. At the time, there were 26 men working underground. They were actually nearing the end of another 12-hour shift. Following the methane ignition, the coal dust that was hanging around because they didn't do stone dusting also ignited, which added to the intensity of the flames. The 26 men in the mine, approximately a mile underground, were trapped. So rescue efforts began immediately, although thanks to a lack of a rescue plan on behalf of Westray, even the rescue teams were in grave danger attempting to save who they could. It just goes so wrong at so many turns. So yep. wrong. <laughs> 31 hours after the explosion, a rescue team was able to get into the southwest section only to find the bodies of 11 dead mine workers. They continued their search, and after a few more days, they were able to find the bodies of four more miners, but this would actually be the end of the search. The owners decided to stop rescue efforts, acknowledging little possibility that the 11 remaining workers they hadn't found would have survived, leaving them to be buried there for the rest of time. Um, they never recovered their bodies. There wasn't an effort made to go in and recover the bodies afterwards. And even now, as the mine has been closed and filled in and basically, you know, put had grass put over it, they are still down there. Mm -hmm. As reported by the Museum of Industry, over the course of six days, quote, local and regional dragger teams battled the wreckage to rescue the men. They encountered nothing but sheer devastation, mangled and twisted roof supports and machinery, piles of coal, stone and debris. They described conditions like a horror movie and the devil himself would not go in there. Now, I also wanted to share a small portion of what the Westray inquiry said about the rescue. Quote, I would be remiss if I did not comment on the selfless bravery shown by the rescue teams in the days following the explosion. The conditions in the mine were terrifying. The force of the explosion resulted in severe instability within the roof and the walls of the mine. Rockfalls of varying degrees of intensity were almost continuous. Signs of the devastation were rampant, as were signs of impending danger. The poisonous, unbreathable atmosphere and actively working ground surrounding the mine openings with the attendant grinding and cracking were extremely stressful. Yet these men, miners trained in mine rescue, each wearing his personal life support system, went unquestioningly into that perilous environment with the hope of finding some of their comrades alive. The rescuers came from mainland Nova Scotia, Cape Breton, and New Brunswick. We can only be thankful for this valiant display of concern for fellow workers. I also wish to recognize the entire community for its selfless work in those difficult days. End quote. Now, the big question here, I'm sure, is was Kara Resources Incorporated held liable? <laughs> no. <laughs> you, my dear, are spot on. Yeah. <laughs> The answer is not really. 
117 of the miners that were not killed during the blast received severance pay for 12 weeks, which totaled $1.2 million distributed between these 117 miners. There was a lawsuit that was filed by the families of deceased miners against the province of Nova Scotia, but it was eventually thrown out by the courts on the ground that the province could not be sued under the Workers' Compensation Act. As far as criminal charges go, Carra was initially charged of 52 non-criminal counts of operating an unsafe mine, charges that were eventually dropped after the company went bankrupt in 1993. The charges were brought again shortly thereafter, but the Supreme Court of Canada ordered a new trial. Mine managers Gerald Phillips and Roger Perry received criminal negligence and manslaughter charges, but they never went to trial after the Crown determined that there wasn't enough evidence to get a conviction. As I stated earlier, there was a government inquiry into the operation of the mine, um, the government's expected role, and the cause and results of the explosion. But both founder and chief executive officer of Kara, Clifford Frame, and former president of Westray, Marvin Pelly, refused to testify or cooperate with the inquiry. Because the inquiry itself didn't hold any federal powers, they couldn't issue any subpoenas, Mm -hmm. and basically nothing happened to them. Of course. (laughs) Now, I do want to end this on somewhat of a high note. So there's a particular reason that I covered this case. So Mm -hmm. living in the U.S., we know um, corporations, generally speaking, are treated as people. Mm -hmm. It's something that I'm not a super big fan of. They nope. get out of a lot of shit because of this. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really hard to hold a corporation liable for its actions. Unless I don't, I don't even know, unless some big media storm happens or, mm-hmm. you know, even then you're not talking about jail time. You're talking about fines yep, and slaps on wrists. when you, f- yeah. And when you find a company, and that company makes $2 billion a year, it means nothing. Mm -hmm. So I I covered this case because it had a direct effect on the law in Canada. So following the inquiry, there was this public outcry for change in legislation in order to hold organizations criminally liable. It took many years of lobbying and marching by the United Steelworkers of Canada and the West Ray Family Group. But finally, on March 31st, 2004, the West Ray Bill was passed by Parliament into law, which actually amended the Criminal Code of Canada. Mm-hmm. So what this does, the West Ray Bill, it's a- according to Canada's Department of Justice, quote, it creates an occupational health and safety duty for all organizations and individuals who undertake or have the authority to direct how others work or perform a task to take all reasonable steps to prevent bodily harm to the person performing the work or task and to any other person. So basically, it allows for the prosecution of companies for criminal negligence which, in my opinion, is great. Mm-hmm. I I think that's awesome. Negligence is one of these things that's like, especially when you're talking about corporations, 
like I said, really difficult to enforce. Criminal negligence is even more difficult to enforce. So I saw this and was like, this is awesome. Looking a little farther into it, uh, as I said, it was it was passed in 2004. Mm-hmm. It took until 2018, 14 years after the passage of the Westray Bill, for any company to be charged under these uh, new criminal codes. So there is still this like reluctance almost to charge anybody under this new code. Some of it comes from not wanting to be the first court to use it. Like there's this tendency to let somebody else set precedence. You don't want to be the one to set the precedence necessarily. Yeah. I think a lot of people are really hoping that the case and the company that was charged under this bill gets some sort of time. You know, I don't think anybody is wanting to just run around arresting, you know, hundreds of CEOs and throwing them in jail. I don't really think anybody wants that. But it'd be nice to see like a couple (laughs) go to jail, right? Mm -hmm. If they're doing stuff that is uh, criminally (sighs) wrong. But that is the case of the Westray mine explosion. I'm always interested in things that change the law for the better. Mm -hmm. I think that's a case here. We do not have anything in the U.S., that is classified as like a corporate homicide law. Mm-hmm. We don't have that. It just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> yeah, no. I it just makes it corporate things make me so mad. <laughs> you are preaching to the choir. <laughs> mm, hmm. So before you run off and start a multi-billion dollar company that doesn't give a shit about people's safety or lives, (laughs) why don't you, why don't you check out this podcast? Hi, I'm Ellen and I'm scared we exist in the Matrix. I'm Jaslyn and I'm bad at (laughs) ad-libbing. And you're listening to High Expectations. The promo. For our international listeners, you can appreciate our cute New Zealand accents. For our local listeners, you might bump into us in the street three times in the same hour. Our podcast is about pop culture, sexuality, relationships, interesting hobbies, banter, and ragging on each other. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Pocket Casts, Podcast Addict, or anywhere you might like to find podcasts. Yay! Please subscribe. Goodbye! Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Well, that has been our episode, folks. Wrapping up another week of remote recording. <laughs> Janelle, I miss your face. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't. Because I'm a mess Aww. right now. <laughs> I just miss recording in the same room as you. I know. Ugh. One and day. All the, all the issues that we have when we record on our own. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. It's a struggle. It's true. It's true. We've got some really exciting stuff, I think, coming up for you towards the end of this year. We're just not going to talk about it right now until it's all, like, done yeah, and so put together. With it. And <laughs> we have dates of stuff. Mm-hmm. But get excited. Get excited. <laughs> stuff that you don't know about. It's- yeah. Hopefully the world doesn't implode before then or you'll never know. <laughs> It's coming. Yeah, here's to hoping we survive November. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. What do we got? What Do we have any, like, events or anything to talk about? Not um, really. Not right now. No, I mean, you know, Fringe is over. That was the big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the end of the year is going to be slow for us in the podcast land. Not in real life, but... <laughs> Thank God, because... I could use it. Yeah. We're just going to put out our normal episodes. I don't think we have anything going on too crazy. I mean, we do have a couple fun Sur- announcements. Surprises. That we'll, yeah. Fun surprise announcements that will happen, but it's not going to be anything like that you got to do anything extra for. No. <laughs> we'll put They're it just going to show up in your feed. Yeah. It's just going to be a magical surprise that appears before you. Yes. So if you enjoyed this episode, you can find many, many more like this at BadTasteCrimeCast.com, where we have all of our episodes. Guys, we're like rolling in on 100 episodes real quick God, who are we? Four years, Before the end of the year, (laughs) we will, I think before the end of the year, we will have hit 100. Yeah, we should. (laughs) Wish we could have done it in a better time. Um, Yep. But, you know... (laughs) You just use the cards that are dealt to you sometimes. But mm-hmm. <laughs> while you're there, um, while you're at the website, you can also check out some merch uh, by going to badtastecrimecast.com slash merch if you need like a hoodie to get you through the winter that's coming up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Or a bag or like a, like a pencil case, I think. <laughs> For all your pencils. <laughs> For all your pencils. You can also, if you want to support the show, go to badtastecrimecast.com slash donate, where you will find our Patreon. We got tons of bonus content on there that you can get access to for as little as a dollar. Look at that. Who would have thought? <laughs> it's probably the cheapest uh, Christmas gift that you can give anybody is Bad Taste Crimecast Extras. Yeah, guys. So get on I- it. I want that for Christmas. Again, as long as provided the world doesn't explode before Christmas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what else? What else? What else? You can find us on Facebook at Bad Taste Crimecast. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at BT Crimecast. We got a lot of fun and exciting stuff going on, on our social meds. Yeah. Um, other than that, I think, Do is there anything else to know before we wrap up? Uh, you know, don't be a terrible person. Wow. Wear a mask, wash your hands, and let's try to live a, just a little longer. Just a little. <laughs> <laughs> it's all very good general life advice. Yes. I approve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Well, our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zeshevsky, the Enigma. <laughs> this has been the Bad Taste Crime Cast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Bye bye. 
as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all people in some form or 